0: And the question is, what does it mean for a Christian to violate his conscience or their conscience? Well, we need to understand that conscience is a reality taught throughout the whole Bible. Christians possess a conscience, and perhaps one way of thinking about conscience is as a moral voice or a moral monitor that we have in our beings that is an alarm that goes off if we're being tempted to go in an immoral direction. Our conscience testifies internally to us that what we sense to be good or evil. And the problem with conscience, of course, is that it's not 100% reliable. It's not 100% accurate. It does testify within us to the reality of the difference between good and evil. But the problem with sinners is that they can, in various ways, silence or even harden or even distort their conscience. And so something that at one point in our lives strikes us as very wicked, later in life we can dull the conscience if we don't listen to it. So that the longer we no longer have that testimony within us, that something is wicked. And that means that a conscience needs to be cultivated. A conscience needs to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit through the work of reading and studying and meditating on the Word and hearing the Word preached. And the Holy Spirit preeminently strengthens conscience. By the use of the word of God, our study of it, our turning to the word of God again and again and again to know what the will of the Lord is. And so conscience needs to be strengthened within us and it needs to be informed by the word of God so that it will provide that instinctive reaction within us to know what is good and what is evil. And so the conscience, once it's strengthened by the Word of God, does testify to us what is right, what is wrong, but it's possible for the Christian to ignore conscience, to suppress conscience, to violate conscience. And so just as we hear the Word of God telling us what is true, what is good, we can act against it. And so too with conscience, we can act against it, but we ought not to. Part of the danger is that if we consistently violate our conscience, then we begin to deafen and deaden it, and it will not testify as it ought within us. Now, the function of the conscience in ethical decision-making, it tends to complicate matters for us. The commandments of God are eternal, but in order to obey them, we must first appropriate them internally. And the organ of such internalization has been classically called the conscience. Some describe this inner voice as the voice of God within. The conscience is a mysterious part of man's inner being. And within the conscience, in a secret hidden recess, lies the personality so hidden that at times it functions without our being immediately aware of it. And when Sigmund Freud brought hypnosis into the place of respectable scientific inquiry, men began to explore the subconscious and examine those intimate caverns of the personality. And encountering the conscience can be an awesome experience. The uncovering of the inner voice can be, as one psychiatrist knows, like looking into hell itself. And yet we tend to think of the conscience as a heavenly thing, a point of contact with God rather than a hellish organ. We think of the cartoon character faced with an ethical decision while an angel is perched on one shoulder and a devil on the other, playing tug-of-war with the poor man's head. The conscience can be a voice from heaven or hell. It can lie as well as press us into biblical truth. It can speak out of both sides of its mouth, having the capacity either to accuse or to excuse. We see this in the movie Pinocchio. Walt Disney gave us the song, Give Us a Little Whistle, which urges us to always let your conscience be your guide. This is, at best, Jiminy Cricket Theology. For the Christian, the conscience is not the highest court of appeal for right conduct. The conscience is important, but it's not normative. It's incapable of distortion. I should say it's capable of distortion and misguidance. It is mentioned some 31 times in the New Testament with abundant indication of its capacity for change. The conscience can be seared. The conscience can be eroded. It can be desensitized by repeated sin. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 3.3 3 described Israel as having the brazen look of a prostitute. From repeated transgressions, Israel had, like the prostitute, lost her capacity to blush. With the stiff necked and the hardened heart came the callous conscience. The sociopath can murder without remorse, being immune to the normal pangs of conscience. Through the con- though the conscience is not the highest tribunal of ethics... It is perilous to act against conscience. Martin Luther trembled in agony at the Diet of Worms because of the enormous moral pressure he was facing. And when asked to recant from his writings, he included these words in his reply. My conscience is held captive by the word of God. To act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Luther's graphic use of the word uh, conscience and captivate it illustrates the visceral power the compulsion of conscience can exert on a person you see once a person is gripped by the voice of conscience a power is harnessed by which acts of heroic courage may issue forth a conscience captured by the word of god is both noble and powerful And so, was Luther correct in saying to act against conscience is neither right nor safe? And here, we need to tread carefully, lest we slice our toes on the ethical razor's edge. If if the conscience can be misinformed or even distorted, why should we not act against it? Should we follow our conscience into sin? And here we have a dilemma of the double jeopardy sort. If we follow our conscience into sin, we are guilty of sin in so much as we are required to have our conscience rightly informed by the word of God. And yet, if we act against conscience, we are also guilty of sin. The sin may not be located in in what we do, but rather in the fact that we commit an act we believe to be evil. And here, Romans 14.23 comes into play. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. For example, if a person is taught and comes to believe that wearing lipstick is a sin and then wears lipstick, that person is sinning. The sin resides not in the lipstick, to be clear, but in the intent to act against what one believes to be a command of God. In fact, the dilemma of double jeopardy demands that we diligently strive to bring our consciences into harmony with the mind of Christ lest a carnal conscience lead us into disobedience. We require a redeemed conscience, a conscience of the spirit rather than the flesh. And in fact, the manipulation of conscience can be a destructive force within the Christian community. Legalists often are masters of guilt manipulation, while antinomians, those who live however they want to live, master the art of quiet denial. The conscience is a delicate instrument that must be respected. One who seeks to influence the conscience of others carries a heavy responsibility to maintain the integrity of the other person's own personality as crafted by God. You see, when we impose false guilt on others, we paralyze our neighbor, we bind them in chains where God has left them free. And when we urge false innocence, we contribute to their delinquency, exposing them to the judgment of God. You see, your conscience is what your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. It's a generally reliable instrument, so a general rule you should follow your conscience. But general rules have exceptions. That voice in your head is not necessarily God's voice. Sometimes your conscience may be theologically incorrect. That was the case for the Christians in Rome in the middle of the first century. Some of those Christians had a weak conscience in three specific areas. First, they ate vegetables, as we see in Romans 14.2 and Romans 14.21. Second, they valued some days more than others, as we see in Romans 14.5. Third, they abstained from wine, as we see in Romans 14.21 and also Romans 14.17 and so you can have a weak conscience in a particular area. area. That is, you may be theologically correct, but not heretical about a particular issue. Now, the terms strong and weak in Romans 15.1, they imply that a strong conscience is more desirable than a weak one. Why wouldn't you want your conscience to be as scripturally informed as possible? Now, moving from a strong conscience uh, excuse me, moving from a weak to a strong on a particular issue, it requires that you calibrate your conscience. Just like you may calibrate a clock or a scale that's a bit off, you may need to align your conscience with the standard of God's word so that it functions correctly. And so how do you know the difference between singing against your conscience and calibrating your conscience? Well, you're singing against your conscience when you believe your conscience is speaking correctly, and yet you refuse to listen to it. You're also calibrating your conscience when Christ, the Lord of your conscience, teaches you through the scripture that your conscience has been incorrectly warning you about a particular matter, and so you decide to to listen, you decide no longer to listen to your conscience in that matter. And suppose that your conscience condemns you for eating bacon. You think that Christians today still must follow what the Mosaic law commands about food. The theologically correct view is that bacon is, is victory food, that, that Christians under the new covenant can enjoy to the glory of God. But if you think that it's wrong to eat bacon, then you're sinning if you eat bacon. But you could calibrate or adjust or even train your conscience that bacon is no longer taboo for God's people, based on Mark seventeen eighteen through 19 Romans fourteen seventeen, and 1 Corinthians 8-8. And even after you're convinced that it's not sinful to eat bacon, your conscience may warn you the first time you eat bacon. But ignoring that warning is not searing your conscience, but calibrating it under the, the lordship of Christ. You know, God graciously included an example in the Bible of someone calibrating their conscience on this very issue. Peter, we see this in Acts ten nine through 16. God gave Peter a vision of certain kinds of animals that the Old Testament forbade Jews to eat. The Lord Jesus commanded Peter, kill and eat. Peter's weak conscience revolted against this command when he said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And when it came to eating unclean animals and fellowshipping of Gentiles, Peter's faith was weak. But because Christ himself was commanding him, he had to calibrate his conscience so that he would have the faith to accept food and people that he was previously not able to accept. That's the difference between sinning and calibrating your conscience. You know, let's be honest, our, our culture has declared war on guilt. The, the very concept is considered medieval, obsolete, unproductive, and, and yet some people who trouble themselves with feelings of personal guilt are usually referred to therapists whose task it is to boost their self-consciousness. Now, or self-image. No one, after all, is supposed to feel guilty. Guilt is not conducive to dignity and self-esteem. And so, society encourages us to sin, but it will not tolerate the the guilt sin produces. But the answer to dealing with guilt is not to ignore it. That's the most dif- dangerous thing you can do. Instead, you need to understand that God graciously implanted a powerful ally within you to aid you in the battle against sin. He gave you your conscience, and that gift is a key to bringing you freedom and joy in Christ. If you find your conscience polluted by this fallen world, you're not alone. First Corinthians six nine through eleven. Christians just like you have come out of all kinds of sinful backgrounds. Some of them quite wretched, but through the blood of Christ, God has been gracious to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, as we see in Hebrews nine fourteen. And as a Christian, you have the capacity to walk before God with a clear conscience. In fact, that is your daily privilege and joy, according to Acts 14, or excuse me, Acts twenty four sixteen, which says, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. And that can be a daunting task in this world, but rest assured, you have every resource to keep a healthy, sensitive, and pure conscience before God. And here are some simple principles to remember involving confession, forgiveness, restitution, procrastination, and education. First, confession. That is, confess and forsake your sin. Examine your guilty feelings in light of the word of God. Deal with the sin that God's word reveals. Proverbs 28:13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. First John 1 speaks of confession of sin as an ongoing characteristic of the Christian life. When it says in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We should certainly confess those we have wronged. James five sixteen says, Therefore confess your sin to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. But above all, you should confess to the one whom sin offends most. As David said in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave all the guilt of my sin. Second, forgiveness. Ask forgiveness and be reconciled to anyone you have wronged. Jesus says this in Matthew five twenty-three through 24. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Jesus says this in Matthew six fourteen through 15. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. Third, restitution. Make restitution for those that you have wrong. Numbers 5, 6-7 or seven says, Speak to the sons of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins which he has committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it one-fifth of it, and give it to him who is wronged. The principle behind that law is binding on believers living in the New Testament as well. Procrastination. Don't procrastinate in clearing your wounded conscience. Paul said in Acts twenty four sixteen that he did his best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. In fact, some people put off dealing with their conscience, thinking their conscience will clear itself in time. It won't. Procrastination allows guilty feelings to fester and this in turn generates depression, anxiety, and even other emotional issues. Guilty feelings may persist long after the fence is forgotten, often spilling over to other areas of our lives. That's one reason why people often feel guilty, and they're not sure why. Such confused guilt may be a symptom that something is terribly wrong spiritually. Paul may have had that in mind when he wrote in Titus one fifteen To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. And dealing with a wounded conscience immediately by heart-searching prayer before God is the only way to keep it clear and sensitive. Putting off dealing with guilt inevitably compounds the problem. You need to, last, educate your conscience. A weak and easily grieved conscience results from a lack of spiritual knowledge, according to 1 Corinthians 8-7. If your conscience is too easily wounded, don't violate it. To violate even a weak conscience is to train yourself to override conviction, and that will lead to overriding true conviction about real sin. However, violating the conscience is a sin itself, according to Romans 14.23, bringing legitimate guilt for a real offense against God. And so, respond to your conscience, even if it's weak, and then continue to inform your conscience with the Word of God so that it can begin to function with reliable data. An important aspect of educating the conscience is teaching it to focus on the right object, that is, divinely revealed truth in the Word of God. If your conscience looks only to personal feelings, well, it can accuse you wrongly. You're you're certainly not to order your life according to your feelings. A conscience fixed on feelings becomes unreliable. And if you're subject to depression and melancholy, you of all people should not allow your conscience to be informed by your feelings. Despondent feelings will provoke unnecessary doubts and fears in the soul when not kept in check by a well-advised conscience. The conscience must be persuaded by the word of God, not by your feelings. And furthermore, the conscience errs when the mind focuses wholly on your faltering and sin and ignores the triumph of God's grace at work in and through you as a Christian. True Christians experience both realities. Conscience must be allowed to weigh the fruit of the Spirit in your life, as well as the remnants of your sinful flesh. It must see your faith as well as your feelings. Otherwise, the conscience will become overly accusing, prone to unwholesome doubts about your standing before God. Learn to subject your conscience to the truth of God and to the teaching of Scripture. And as you do that, your conscience will be more clearly focused and better able to give you reliable feedback from the Word of God. And with a trustworthy conscience, you have a powerful aid to spiritual growth and stability in Christ. You see, with a clear conscience, you live in an abundance of freedom and joy. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Servants of Grace Theology segment. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you.